Let's go ahead and, and take your place in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse 26. We're going to talk tonight about uh, the miraculous gifts and the Holy Spirit. If anybody needs a Bible, we have extra ones <clears throat> up here. Um, in our jail ministry this past week, uh, Ben and I were there. And <clears throat> one of the guys that we talked to said that before he came to jail, he had been to church two times in his life. And this is a guy who's probably around my age. And he said the first time that he ever went to church, he went to, I think it was more of like a Pentecostal church, and he says he went in and he sat down, and he says, having never been in church before, some some of us in here tonight were probably raised in church, but even if you were a kid, just imagine, you see this, this building that looks unique, right, with this big thing called a steeple, which most of us are already guilty anyway, right? And a lot of people, that, that keeps them away. He goes in, and he said people were, were jumping on, on the pews, okay? Jumping on the pews, first time. And he said he went in and he sat down, and he says, I was already nervous. This is Chris, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and he, he said, a guy turned around to me, and he says, I was terrified. I didn't know what was going on, my first chance. And the guy said, if you don't go up, and he pointed to the front to the altar. He said, you're going to hell. And then the guy just turned around. <laughs> and, and so imagine you, you, you come into a church. You don't really know what's going on. Um, people, it looks like there's a lot of stuff going on that you've never seen before. And some person you don't know turns around to you and says, if you don't walk up there, you're going to hell. Period. Turns around and looks back at the front. Now, what would probably be our reaction? I mean, I, and here, here, here's the thing. No matter if we are either having a good time up there, man, they're going crazy. Uh, even we're raised in like a very, uh, some people have been raised like a very stoic religious background where everything's very calm, you know, and, and dictated and this happens this time. Other people are raised in a more, I guess we could say, demonstrative type of um, tradition. But either way, imagine going in and having that happen to you. That's sort of what was going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, there in verse 13, we're gonna, we really don't, we've, I can't wait to get to this. This is actually a, an academic book that has documented modern day accounts of, um, supernatural things, and we'll deal with that here uh, in a little bit. But we're gonna try to touch on 1 Corinthians 14. If you're taking notes, um, by the way, does everyone have an outline? Does anybody not have an outline? And I have one. We've got a couple back there, if you don't mind. Thanks, thanks, Trish. <clears throat> if you're taking notes, you might want to write, write this down. The context of 1 Corinthians 14 is order and worship. All right? It's order and worship. Now, in a Baptist church, what is one thing that we normally receive when we walk in? The bulletin. Have you ever seen a Baptist walk into church and they haven't received their bulletin? They don't know what to do, right? It's like I may actually have to talk to people and be friendly instead of awkwardly sit down on my pew and read the bulletin. But that's not what we're talking about here. What Paul is talking about is he's trying to address a thing to where things like that were happening and unbelievers were coming into the church 
and thinking that Christians were absolutely out of their mind. So what the Apostle Paul does is he tries to um, give a, I guess you could say, a way things should be done so that the method doesn't obscure the message. So there in verse number 13, uh, the Bible says, Therefore one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing um, with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? Verse 17. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Okay, let's hop over um, to verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners... Will I speak to this people? And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, I would note this in your Bibles, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for believers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will not say, will they not say that you are out of your what? Out of your minds. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. Now I want to make a little note right here in verse 24 if you're taking notes. The word prophecy in the Bible has more to do with foretelling. We could say in our saying it like it is. Foretelling, like the Old Testament prophets, repent. It has far more to do with foretelling than it does about foretelling. Now, does prophecy have to do with the future? Yes. But the overwhelming majority of prophetic instances in the Bible are calling people to repentance, saying, this is the reality, here's where you've gone wrong, here's what you must do to repent and get right with the Lord. So when he's saying prophecy, often we take that today as somebody prophesying, which is preaching the Word of God. That's why he says, if an unbeliever comes in, And everyone, or you have one person speaking the word of God, saying, here's what God says, then the person's going to be convicted um, on account of all. Verse 24. Then verse 25, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is very interesting because we probably all can remember a time where we've been in church, whether we got saved in church or outside of church, to where it's just like we heard somebody prophesying, teaching God's word, preaching God's word, forth-telling what we really are in our hearts. And it's like the Holy Spirit just takes that like a, I mean, like an arrow and points it through and just says, like, like Nathan, the old prophet, pointed to David and said, you are the man. And we say, oh, it's me and I need to be saved. We fall on our face. Maybe it's not physical and we get saved. We repent. So that's Paul saying there's a difference in this context of the use of tongues and the use of preaching. In other words, preaching that's going to apply to every single person who comes in the church. But he says, if everyone is speaking in tongues at one time, unbelievers come in and they say, you're out of your minds. 
This is creating a lot of questions. I know we're gonna, we're gonna try to get to it. Verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, a business meeting report. Never mind. That's not in there. Uh, or an interpretation. Uh, let all things be done. Here's the key. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. And each in turn, and then let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that you may all learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of what? Of peace. So, um, I was having a conversation with someone, uh, actually a friend in Brazil not too long ago. And um, she's saying, you know, went to this, this large gathering. And it was so awesome because everyone was speaking in tongues at the same time. It was a move of God. And we're going to get into this here in a little bit. I think that no matter where we stand on the tongues issue today, we should be very, very careful of playing kind of like the spiritual witch doctor of saying, that's of God, that's not of God, that's not of God, that's of God. Be very careful with that. But I said, the only, the only way that I have to interpret whether something is legitimate is what Scripture says about it. And the Apostle Paul says, like, even if we accept, you know, that tongues are still valid within the church today, that if there's a violation with what God has already given us in Scripture, how can I accept the rest of it to be in accordance with Scripture? Does that make sense? In other words, it has to follow, for me to even, even consider it being legitimate, follow what already has been said in Scripture. And that is, let two or three um, speak in tongues, and then there has to be an interpreter there and then even uh, in verse 30 through 32, it says that uh, this, this, what is it? In verse 32, actually, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, which means that if someone comes in and maybe they have a word from God or they have, that, let's say they speak in a tongue and someone interprets that and it's totally, totally off base, it means that just because someone says this is from God, if it doesn't match up with what we already have from God, it's probably not from God, okay? And a lot of times we're, we're backed into a corner today because our culture is postmodern, right? You ever had anybody tell you when you try to explain to them about Jesus, well, I'm glad that that's, that's your truth, right? I'm glad you found that. I'm glad you're happy. I'm glad you enjoy your church. But as for me, my truth is such and such. A lot of times we feel bad with ever coming down and saying, this is truth, this is not truth. This is real. This is not real. And so I, I want all of us, you know, no matter where we stand on this issue, to come and say, my authority for this is Scripture, okay? And I think reading this, even if someone says, you know, tongues are still active today, not just in a missions context where God's like going to use someone speaking in English and they're going to hear it in their local dialect. Even if someone says it's actable in the church today, don't you think that this model would be much more of a representation of maybe Christian truth 
than like my friend Chris who came into a church and everybody is going off at once and it's exactly what happened 2,000 years ago. He thought everyone was out of their mind. And it took jail to get him saved. So, it's just just a thought there. Um, I know now that we have opened up every can of worms possible by just walking through that text of Scripture. So, let's just do a little bit on the history uh, of speaking in tongues. This is all on your outline. Um, In Christian history, the latter half of the 2nd century, there's a group called the Montanists. And this was from... Uh, a leader named Montanus, and he had two female disciples who claimed to be spokespersons of the Holy Spirit. When he was baptized, he spoke in tongues, claimed to speak in tongues, and said that he was being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that would be, I guess, the earliest that we could find um, is the practice outside of the book of Acts. And then, uh, also in your notes, this is not up here, you can write down as early as 1896, there were pockets of speaking in tongues in areas like North Carolina. And that was in the theology book I actually read earlier today. But the beginning of what we would call modern day speaking in tongues, the term is glossolalia. G-L-O-S-S-O-L-A-L-I-A. Glossolalia. Um, The beginning was uh, with William J. Seymour, he was a black holiness preacher who led what came to be known as the Azusa Street Meetings in Los Angeles beginning April 14, 1906. And the, basically the, the belief was that being baptized by the Holy Spirit was something separate from salvation. Um, in other words, you need to be saved and then baptized by the Holy Spirit. Anybody know how you would know that you were baptized by the Holy Spirit? What was the evidence? Right, speaking in tongues. So this kind of is uh, what started the modern movement of Pentecostalism um, that turned into, uh, in some circles, charismatic um, ways. I just want to make a note here. There are several guys uh, in the Ph.D. program at Liberty, great guys. Two of them are missionaries in Africa. This is kind of cool. One of them he teaches um, at a Pentecostal Bible College in Rustenburg, South Africa. And he actually asked me to come teach there for a week next year. I was like, man, that's pretty open-minded, you know, asking this Baptist guy to come teach it in his school. So um, I have friends that are that are Pentecostals, and um, it's going to be very, very interesting, I hope, what we get into here tonight, and hopefully we'll have some time for questions and whatnot. So that's basically um, where it happened. Um, but here, an interesting thing that we'll get into in just a moment is what happened between here, uh, latter half of the second century A.D., and the beginning um, of the twentieth century. So here are the arguments, and I got this straight out of Millard Erickson. This is not, you know, me trying to weigh the table one way or the other here. Um, uh, the arguments in favor of speaking with tongues. Go back to uh, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 18. We read that just a few moments ago. I think I have most of it up on the board. Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. So from this verse, is speaking in tongues bad? No. Quite the opposite. The Apostle Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Alright? So speaking in tongues, and this is, this is very legitimate from Scripture, 
Nowhere in the Bible are we forbidden to speak in tongues. I've talked to some very hardline, um, I, I, don't, I don't even want to, hardline people who, who almost go down the line of the speaking in tongues today is, is demonic. I don't, um, I've known a lot of people in church who would never want to even speak in tongues that I would think may be demonic. And I'm talking about like the mean so uh, But number two, on the book of Acts is a straightforward narrative. If it's there, we should do it. Okay? It's like the book of Acts, the things that happen, that is a prescriptive thing for us. Alright? So those would be basically uh, the two, there's a lot of sub uh, reasoning within that, but those would be the the two main ones. Um, The arguments against speaking in tongues, and by the way, when we say speaking in tongues here, we're talking about in the context of the church. Okay? We're not talking about like a private prayer language or, or something like that. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Um, the argument would be that it's virtually an unknown practice throughout Christian history. We, we just don't see it into the second century, the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, number two, um, go back one chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, <clears throat> um, verse 8. This is the love chapter. Paul says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now the debate here is whether Paul is talking about, like ultimately, once Christ comes back, everything is said and done. We know that Christ said that um, the words, what was it, one jot or one tittle of the law of God's word will never pass away. But what Paul's talking about here is the mode. Right, like the mode or the method in which God delivers His truth to us, that that will one day pass away. But it's not clear here in this verse whether that means ultimately when Jesus comes back or sometime during the church age. Number three, tongues were used to authenticate the gospel. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, salvation was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is actually um, an argument, if you want to make a note as well, uh, a view called cessationism um, that says that all of the miraculous gifts in the book of Acts performed by the apostles and Jesus, you know, saying you will do more than I have done and so forth, all of those have ceased. And that the only reason why God gave people tongues or the gift of healing or exorcisms or any of that was to simply authenticate in the first century this message of Jesus is from God. Alright, that's, that's a view um, that I, I don't hold, by the way, to, to cessationism. I don't see anywhere in the Bible to where it says that we can say that every single act of the Spirit is ended in the first century. Number four... Um, this is an interesting thing that comes out of um, Erickson's theology book. Unrelated syllables that do not display a sufficient number of char- the characteristics of language to be classified as such. They've had different linguists study some instances of people speaking in tongues and say that it doesn't, what they're saying, the syllables, it doesn't fit any known language. And here's a note as well. It's not in our outline. Every time you see the word tongues, uh, the word tongues is used to refer to a known language. Alright? It's used to refer to a known language. And that's a very, very, very important concept. Does anybody remember uh, in Acts 2, Peter got up and the day of what? 
Yeah, the day of Pentecost. Now this is an interesting point. I don't want to, we'll run out of time if we get on this. Peter preached the greatest sermon in the history of the church, right? Everybody from the known world was there in Jerusalem. A lot of of Gentile converts to Judaism were there. And then Peter gets up and preaches. Now this is right after Jesus ascended. Does anybody remember what Peter was doing a few weeks before that most of us would be ashamed about? Like to never show our face inside a church again or never utter the name of Jesus again? Yeah. I, it, it's not like he slept in on, on a Sunday morning, you know what I'm saying? Like, Peter denied Christ, and then he began to, and one of my New Testament professors said, remember that verse, and he, said he, and he began to curse? He said it wasn't like he was saying bad words, but Peter began to call down curses on himself. Like a first century Jewish thing. Like, if I'm not telling the truth when I say I don't know him, then cursed be me. I mean, crazy stuff. And then the rooster crowed and Peter went out and wept bitterly. I think that the fact, Acts 2, I think every time we ever read Acts 2, see it referenced, is an act of restorative grace by the Holy Spirit of God. That you can take a guy who was a Christ denier a few weeks before and raise him up to give the greatest sermon that resulted in over 3,000 people being saved. That is awesome. So if you stumble, if you get messed up, don't let Satan tell you to throw in the towel. All right, That's a little side sermon for tonight. Uh, but this is an interesting thing too. Um, psychologists have also noted that there are some um, similarities between some mass speaking in tongues and some psychological issues um, as well, like people, you know, map, mass, um, I guess you could say, hypnosis and so forth. It's interesting. I don't think that we can make an argument um, based upon that, but it is really interesting. Um, understanding the gift of tongues. Okay. Before we go through these six things, th- this is the best way that I know how to interpret it. All right? From my reading of the Bible... Um, I have godly friends who disagree. Some would say that they've ceased. Some would say that they're still active in a certain element that I wouldn't go so far as to say. So just take this with a grain of salt, all right? I'm not doing this to undercut my position. This is the best way that I know how to interpret this. And the book of James says that teachers will be judged more strictly. And I want to just put it out there that the Bible is the truth. Sometimes I believe we've got Jesus right. Okay, all right, I got got it right on Jesus, Son of God. But some of these side issues, I think that there is some room to where Christians can disagree and still have fellowship. Okay, so once again, before we go through this, this should not be a test of fellowship. I think we can still do ministry with each other, um, with other churches who may come down on sides of this. So let's let's not be one of those people um, who wants to drive a wedge, which unnecessarily so. Um, number one, um, Acts does, the book of Acts does have the baptism of the Holy Spirit often subsequent to salvation. Okay? There's an argument today that says that no, they're always one and the same. Salvate, when you get saved, you get baptized by the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, it's not the case. Always. But Acts also covers a transitional time in Christian history. Remember the Last Supper where Jesus said, I give, this is the new covenant. We're talking about a transition time to where the Christians, quote unquote, um, which the word Christian wasn't even, they, they were called followers of the way. Just the way. That was what Christianity was called. The Christians in Acts were actually the last of the Old Testament believers. Right? 
Remember the one group to where they came and found, and he, he said, if you receive the Holy Spirit, and they said, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. These were a group of people who had been baptized, and, and remember John the Baptist was preaching repent. They had had a baptism of repentance, but they had never even heard the full gospel yet. So we're not dealing with what we have today we're dealing with that transitional time and people who are the last of the Old Testament believers. Uh, number four, they had faith in the God of the Old Testament who ushered in the New Covenant with miraculous gifts, namely the speak, gift of speaking in tongues. The gift of speaking in tongues was one of the most uh, notorious things that God used to... <clears throat> number five, there were regenerate disciples who were not filled with the Holy Spirit until Pentecost. Remember? So were they all lost? I don't think we could make that argument at all. I mean, seriously, like you've got John, like this person to say, no, John was not filled with the Holy Spirit. He was. Like, I mean, how can, how can you be there at the cross with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and be the one? I mean, it doesn't make sense. So once again, it's a transitional time. So here's where it kind of messes with our Western logical minds. By regenerate, we mean that they've been saved. You've got a group of saved disciples, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. That happened in Acts 2. Alright? Number six. This is the most important thing, I think, the observation that we can gain from Scripture. That being baptized by the Holy Spirit proved that there was no difference between Jew and Gentile. In Acts chapter 10... All the way into Acts chapter 15, it was like when these small pockets of Gentile believers, when they received the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues, it blew the Jews' minds. They actually said, so salvation has come to the Gentiles also. It was like the prevailing view of the Jews was that nobody outside of Judaism or an ethnic Jew could even be saved. So the fact that Peter and the Disciples received the Holy Spirit, Acts 2. And then later, this group of uncircumcised, unclean, outsider, nasty, despised group of, get that religious shiver, Gentiles received the same Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. That was a unifying factor to when we come to, if you want to make a note, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. When Paul says that Jesus Christ has broken down the wall of partition, right? The wall of separation, he's broken that down between Jew and Greek. How did they know that God had broken down the wall? Because the Gentiles received the same Holy Spirit with the same confirmation as did the Jews. So when we look at the book of Acts, we should understand primarily the gift of tongues and the Holy Spirit as the unification, we could call it like first time multiculturalism, but with the central culture. It's God saying, by the way, when I said take the gospel to every people group, all the nations, I meant all the nations. And there's no sub-believers. I think that's good news. Um, you know, Regardless of, of where someone may stand on the issue, that is a, a unification um, factor in the book of Acts. So, um, what about speaking in tongues today? Um, from Scripture, 
what I see is that it has to follow 1 Corinthians 14, 7, uh, 20 through uh, the end of the chapter, just like we talked about. It has to be one at a time um, and so forth. There must be an interpreter there. Uh, interpreter must be present. If no interpreter, the speaker must be silent. Number three, only one should speak at a time, no more than two or three at any one meeting. So here's the question. Um, just, just my view, I, I've not been able to to find a way for, for this question here. Is it possible in cases where a language barrier exists? For example, okay, right, let's say two years from now we get hooked up with New Tribes Mission or the International Mission Board. And we get permission by the Brazilian government. This, this is a fact. The Brazilian government protects some of these tribes that are deep in the Amazon. They're protected almost like an endangered species. And you're not supposed to have interaction with them. It's kind of like a set-off area for an endangered species because they consider them like a national uh, treasure because they're Stone Age people, pretty pretty much. Let's say that we get per- permission from the Brazilian government to go into this area to a group of people who's never heard the gospel before, all right? So all of us, we go on P90X as a group. We get in shape. We get our water down. Actually, a couple years ago, I was invited by a friend to go to the neighboring tribe of the one who killed Jim Elliott. You remember the one? Who, yeah, yeah, the Aka Indians in that group. He said, what we're doing, this, this is awesome. I will never work with Baptists, and you'll know why in just a minute. He said, what we're doing is like, we're doing chicken evangelism. I was like, Baptists do chicken discipleship, you know, but like not chicken. Di-. And he said, what they do is they go into these tribes and they teach them how to raise chickens. Source of meat, instead of having to always be hunter-gatherers. So he said, we would go in there and, and do that, and, and they would learn and so forth. And I was like, wouldn't work with Baptists because they would eat all their chicken. <laughs> always room for a Baptist chicken joke, right? So he said, I would like you to come. And this is a real extreme guy. Um, it's awesome. He's just bouncing off the walls. And he said, we'll probably have to hike for like two to three days through the jungle. And... Um, and so I, I went to the YMC. I was like, bro, if you're, if you're going, I said, I'm clear my schedule. I am in. I am so in. So I went to the Y and I, and I got with the trainer and he said, I said, what are your goals? I said, I would like to be able, um, to run two five minute miles. I want to be able to do 25 regular pull ups. I want to be able to hold my breath for two minutes. And he just looked at me with like the most weirded out blank look. He's like, what? Why are you doing? I was like, have you ever seen that Indiana Jones movie where he's running away from the natives and they're shooting those poison darts? That may happen to me in a, you know, about a year. So I'm gonna be able to hold my breath to swim, you know, like Jason Bourne, like two minutes, you know, out. Anyway, but um, anyway, the trip didn't end up working out. But but imagine if if we were be able to set up with something like that. All right, we go. Random thing happens. Our translator gets a bum knee, can't go any further. We're a day from there. We've got our maps, got our GPS, and we said, we're going. We're going. We go, and we don't abla whatever the language is there, okay? We no, no, all right. And we go there, and we say, we're just going to trust the Lord. We don't even know if they're going to understand anything. I believe in that in that type of a situation, that we can't say that God would never or could not allow us to speak the gospel in English and like Acts 2, they hear it in whatever their local dialect is. 
And there are some theologians who would say that that would basically be impossible because all of the miraculous gifts have ceased. Like we should do with any theological debate, not being rude, not being jerks, say, show me in here where everything ceased. Okay, I think that God could be, Holy Spirit could translate for us in a situation like that. Right? Now, what about many cases today to where it's almost like speaking in tongues, the gifts of healing, being slain in the Spirit are commercialized. Um, once again, this is my only, only argument. Does it follow what is already given in the Bible? If it doesn't follow 1 Corinthians 14, I can't accept it as legitimate. Because if it doesn't follow this, then how can it be in accordance with what it doesn't follow? Um, And now this comes to my favorite time. All right. A little bit of story time for 12 minutes. This book right here, I actually have it in your notes. Um, It's two volumes, I think, on Amazon. They run about 32 bucks for for both. So, I mean, it's, it's a great deal. This is printed by, um, it's called Miracles, the Credibility of the New Testament Accounts by Baker Academic. It's not, not Baker Books, Baker Academics, a.k.a. Nerd Farm, all right? Uh, written by Craig Keener, a geeky guy who, who loves the Lord. This book, both volumes, 1,172 pages and 1,240 footnotes. All right. When you when you talk to um, and the, the Lord's still helping me, but you know when I went to, to to seminary and even when I'm doing at Liberty, it's primary philosophy, which that that's not a group of people. When you read about philosophers that you want to party with, you know what I'm saying? Like some of them committed suicide. They were always just like the only you know Camus said the only the only existential question left in life is whether I should commit suicide. It's like, well, I guess you don't want to go to Dairy Queen afterwards, you know? It's just it's a very interesting group. So one thing I, I, we all need to understand is that all of us are children of the Enlightenment, okay? When the Enlightenment happened, the Western world received this worldview that says that the supernatural is impossible, David Hume, because if a miracle happened, it would violate the laws of nature, and if something violated the laws of nature, then nature would be thrown and then everything would just spin out of control and the universe would basically end. Okay? What might be a good question to ask a person who says, miracles, Craig Keener, by the way, he got his PhD at Duke. Alright? Duke does not give away PhD. This is not a dude from backwood, hate-filled, Baptist Bible College or something, all right? Like top-notch academics. And then people come to the Bible and say, talks about miracles. I'm not even going to consider miracles because miracles are impossible because they would violate the laws of nature. What may be a key component in that reasoning that's missing that would change the whole scenario? Well, they're assuming that you can run to God. Well, they're right. God. Given that God exists. Yeah, exactly. What our culture has accepted, by and large, is that naturalism, meaning God does not exist, and if God does not exist, are miracles possible? No. 
Everything is mechanical. And in fact, there is no free will at all because the reason why you and I do what we do is because our chemicals simply react. Which means that love is nothing more than a chemical combination. Think about it. It means that there's nothing more in the soul that the mind is exactly the same as the brain. Which means that there is no choice that we're simply predisposed to do what we do. Which means that no one can really be judged for doing anything wrong because they couldn't have a choice because that's the way that they were born. Which those chemicals go back all the way to the beginning of the Big Bang. Which means that whatever happens will happen. There's no guilt. There's no virtue. There's no courage because that person was simply going to do it. There's no cowardice. In the end, everything is Solomon. Everything under the sun is what? Vanity of vanities, it is meaningless, okay? Step back for a minute and say what we've got to do first before we see if miracles are possible is figure out if God actually exists, right? And if there's good evidence for the existence of God, then that opens the door for the possibility of miracles, okay? So with our remaining eight minutes, let me give you a few uh, sources here. Um, And by the way... He did not get any of this from mass crusades. All right? He just chose a priori right out of the gate, say, I'm not even going to investigate things from like church services. That's massive, massive amounts of data that he just decided, you know, to be ultra fair to the, to the skeptics, I'm not even going to consider that. So here's one. Um, this uh, is in the Philippines. Other sources reveal that healing claims contributed to church's growth elsewhere in the Philippines as well. In 1951, Reverend Manuel Gonzalez was very weak and appeared close to death. People prayed for hours for his restoration. He suddenly began to stir and soon jumped out of the bed fully recovered. The funeral was canceled, word spread, and he eventually became a more prominent Christian leader. July 1954, a man unable to walk proved able to walk immediately after prayer. The healing of a blind man drew widespread attention in and around his burial. The other reported healings drew many people into churches. Okay, and once again, you guys can see that, right? You can see all the footnotes perfectly from back there. Every single one of these instances is documented with, with a footnote. It's, it's awesome stuff. Um, there's another one over here. And mo- a lot of these have to do with healings with Pentecostal ministers, charismatic leaders, but it's not just with that. Um, this is in India. Healings, Craig Keener says, healings are by no means limited to Pentecostals, however. For example, some Presbyterian, stop right there. When's the, when is the, Miss Shelby, growing up, did y'all have healing services? Okay. When's the last time? Yeah. All right. So, for example, let that soak in. Some Presbyterian healing meetings led to hundreds of healings and thousands of conversions. The Evangelical Church of India in Tamil Nadu, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, grew from several hundred to 15,000 in 16 years, and the growth was driven partly through first-hand experience of healings and exorcisms. Next time Jessica is here, and if I can point her out to her, maybe let her tell you, from the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, okay? She says, her parents says, that God is using healings in India to show the people there that are steeped in witchcraft and uh, all sorts of, of, I'll just just say it, false religion to show that the Christian God can overcome sickness 
and everything that they think is controlling them um, over there. So uh, there's actually tons of these. There's actually, if y'all want to go through it, stay till next week or Sunday. We've got a lot more footnotes to go. Um, but the question is, what about America? All right. That's all, that's always the question. Okay, for for a skeptic, it's one thing to have things happen in Africa, South Asia, but what about the U.S.? This is about a page, um, so I'm just going I'm just gonna read it to you, and um, may have time to discuss it. Uh, Ed Wilkinson said, "I learned quickly that Ed is not given to uninformed credulity, reflecting his training in neuropsychology. So you know he doesn't go to healing meetings. All right." I'm not making a joke. So a lot of times people's training has to do um, with what they accept and what they reject. He complains about those who want faith to cure everything, using, at it, using it as a neurosis to avoid dealing with reality. Many years ago, however, his family faced a crisis in November 1984 when his eight-year-old son Brad was found to have an atrial septal defect with two holes in his heart. The condition impaired his lungs in addition to his heart to allow... Time to convalesce without interrupting school. The visiting pediatric cardiologist scheduled surgery for June, warning Brad that Brad that he could not play sports anymore in the meantime. The months of waiting proved stressful. As June approached, Brad began giving away his toys, not expecting to survive. One day he asked his father, am I going to die? Ed answered his son honestly. Not everyone facing heart surgery dies, but during heart surgery there is always a possibility. Can Jesus heal me? The eight-year-old asked. Aware of how often faith had been abused, the father cringed. I'll get back to you on that, he responded. A few days later, after some anguished prayer and engagement with, with Philippians 4.13, he shared his resolution with his son. God does heal, but whether he would heal in Brad's case or not, they still had hope of eternal life in Jesus. Which That's, that's good. Galen, the pastor, informed Ed that someone was planning to conduct a healing service in their church in June. Ed felt this was their only hope apart from the surgery that was scheduled the Sunday following the service. When the anticipated service concluded, however, the visiting minister, Wesley Steelberg Jr., initially was focused primarily on praying for emotional healing, and Ed felt cheated. But then Steelberg called for those wanting prayer for physical healing, and Ed urged Brad to go forward. At first reluctant, reluctant, Brad finally complied, explaining to the visiting minister what was wrong. Do you believe that Jesus can heal you? Stilberg asked. Brad answered affirmatively, and Stilberg offered a simple prayer. Following Sunday, the family traveled to the University Hospital in Columbia, Missouri, for further tests. The tests merely confirmed that nothing had changed. The following morning, as Brad was taken for surgery, the doctor explained that Ed could only follow Brad so far as the yellow tape, and the team would be operating on Brad for four to six hours. At this point, any hope of a miraculous healing had faded so that the family could only pray for surgical success. Ed returned anxiously to the waiting area. About an hour, the pediatric cardiac surgeon, the the pulmonologist, and the risk management director for the hospital entered the waiting area and summoned Ed to accompany them. The surgery should have taken three more hours, so Ed was anxious. Because the surgery was obviously no longer occurring, Ed, his mind racing, could only fear the worst as he followed them obediently down a long corridor. You ever been in that situation? That is not a good place to be in. Ushering Ed into a room, they displayed films posted on the wall taken the day before. You see where the blood was leaking from one chamber to the next, the surgeon explained. Then the surgeon showed the film 
they had taken as they were starting surgery with a wall of some sort where the leak had been. Too anxious and, and traumatized to proceed immediately what the, to process immediately what the surgeon was saying, Ed finally interrupted, What happened to my son? Brad is in the recovery room, the surgeon answered calmly. I beg your pardon, Ed demanded. The surgeon explained that there was nothing wrong with Brad's heart, even though the holes were clearly there the day before. His lungs were also now normal. I have not seen this very often, the surgeon explained. While this sort of spontaneous closure could happen to infants, it was not supposed to happen to an eight-year-old. You can count this as a miracle, the pulmonologist added. Somebody somewhere must have been praying. The hospital risk manager added firmly, you can see from the films this was not a misdiagnosis. And there is example after example after example from the academic community. It's not a preacher. He's a professor, PhD from Duke, who's compiled this massive modern evidence that the Holy Spirit is still alive and active today. So action points, and I'm almost out of time. We should pray and seek to be led by the Holy Spirit. It just is so sad when some Baptist churches are afraid of the Holy Spirit. We are commanded to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Psalm says, Lord, I want more of you. When we get saved, we get the Holy Spirit. Let's pray and to be led by and filled by and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Number two, we should see science as a gift from God rather than a limit on God. Once again, if there's evidence for God's existence, that means that God could, in the case of a miracle, temporarily suspend the laws of nature in order to interact within it. And number three, we should pray and believe that God can still do the humanly impossible.